Okay, welcome to Flock Tales, where we drink and talk about birds, mostly. I'm Maya Pershing. I'm Ashley Ola. I'm Kristen Brunk. And I'm Jen Schneiderman. And we are your four resident bird nerds. And today, um, we are going to be talking about indigenous conservation success stories, focusing on birds, because this episode is coming out the week after Thanksgiving. Um... But fuck colonialism. So yes, <laughs> yes. Theme of the episode. Seriously, <laughs> it's also I saw this thing of like, wow, um, it was something likening colonial times of like giving disease to indigenous people to 2020 in the times of Roni. Oh, yeah, yeah, showing like, up at somebody's Thanksgiving dinner. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right, right. That, yeah. That's wild. That's what it was. But yeah. Cody and I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. We dress in all black and <laughs> call it Gothsgiving. <laughs> Wait, that's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> that is good. It's a day of mourning and remembrance. Yeah, right. Get to, but like I never had a mall goth phase either, mm. so. Yeah. It's never too yeah, now's late. your chance. <laughs> I read an oh. article today about how um, instead of celebrating like Columbus and how the Native Americans and the you know colonial Europeans like had this great feast where they were all together and celebrating each other, uh, basically they were like, yeah, you should probably teach your children about the real thing that went down, how the Native Americans mm-hmm. basically helped the colonists to survive, and then mm-hmm. colonists screwed them over and then they had like a whole bunch of actual native american recipes that you could make instead oh, oh, nice. oh that's cool um i mean we do have native americans to thank for a whole bunch of our sort of traditional thanksgiving foods like turkey and mm-hmm. cranberries and squash and corn so and yes. potatoes potatoes mm. yeah I from south potatoes. america and tomatoes and peppers all sorts of good stuff cody has this theory and i completely agree with him where like colonialism started because food in the uk sucked and had no spice (laughs) or flavor whatsoever and so english people were just like hey this place has food that actually tastes good we're gonna go there just for their spices i mean that was the whole (laughs) premise of columbus sailing to well the west indies he didn't get to actual india but (laughs) because he was a dingus yeah yeah spices right like yeah that's what he was after yeah dude the spice trade was like a big deal Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. capital b Mm -hmm. capital d on the other hand the spanish (laughs) were just after gold so lame (laughs) Kristen said capital d and i just can't like go past (laughs) it Always with a capital D. <laughs> <laughs> how you live how you live your life. Oh, you know that capital D. <laughs> Living that capital D life for sure. <laughs> I don't even know what so that means. That. <laughs> I don't know. It's just really funny because it sounds like dick or douchebag, and either way it's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we're off to a good start today. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I yes. haven't eaten dinner yet, and I've almost had an entire beer. That's why yeah, this is the problem with the 6 p.m. recording time, you know? <laughs> or, yeah. or the or, good thing. <laughs> I was going to say it's good because then we just think that we're hysterical. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's see. Indigenous conservation. Um, I was thinking a lot about this today, um, partially because I made the mistake of going to the grocery store. It's currently the day before Thanksgiving, and it was a shit show there. It was horrible. Yeah, we also went today for a few things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I still have to go to the grocery store. You should probably wait until until Friday Friday or Saturday. (laughs) Yeah. No, I was going to go for tomorrow. Fuck. Oh, well. So, yeah, I was at the grocery store just getting, like, bombarded with Thanksgiving propaganda and just feeling <laughs> really annoyed about it today. Um, and it was, like, like, the whole story, I think, to me, that I think is so problematic. Is there the is the part where eventually, like, the Wampanoag people are supposedly just, like, disappeared from the whole narrative, like... They all died, unfortunately, and now we have their land, which, like, you know, super convenient for, like, the the colonial mindset that we have in this country. But I think it's, like, hugely problematic because then so many Indigenous people are just left out of current, like, conversations about bird conservation in this case, but really so many things. And, yeah, it's just kind of freaking me out. Um, also, side note, I live in this cabin that was built in the 1850s by German immigrants who literally came here and like physically occupied the land and were, you know, among the white settlers who pushed indigenous people off. And just like occasionally I just think about that when I'm here, like it seems so distant sometimes and it's not at all. Like it's such a, a present thing in the landscape mm-hmm. today still. Mm-hmm. So day of mourning, day to think about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, somber event oh yeah seriously and I also just wanted to like give a quick shout out um if anyone who's listening to this is like wow like this is a super uncomfortable topic like we're talking about you know like taking over land like living on stolen lands basically and there's such a cool podcast that I would totally recommend I'm so obsessed with it right now it's called mm-hmm. All My Relations and it's hosted by Mantika Wilbur and Adrian Keen and oh have any of you listened no i'm writing it down right now i am doing the same thing yeah oh my god they do such an amazing job just like highlighting indigenous voices and they both have amazing projects um adrian has a blog called native appropriations that just is like highlighting so many amazing dialogues and calling out things that honestly should be called out so i'd check that out for sure Speaking of elevating these stories and voices, I came across a really cool article today. Um, it was published in the Audubon magazine, and it came out in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day earlier in 2020, earlier this year. It's written by Bradford Kasberg, who's the Wetland Restoration Manager um, for Audubon Great Lakes, and he is also a member of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma that... Um, group of people traditionally their homeland was like Illinois Indiana these places that are so urban now and like the land is so changed 
and there's definitely some really cool, really successful land restoration efforts in those areas. And this article was great because he was writing about using traditional ecological knowledge to inform a lot of these restoration decisions. And it was such a cool perspective. So this is a really big uh, like wetland complex, a lot of the Chicago area, which you wouldn't really think about necessarily. I didn't. <laughs> I've never, I guess, thought <laughs> deeply about the ecology of Chicago. But yeah, marshes, <laughs> prairies, a uh, really diverse area in the past. And it's a landscape that's been very changed by colonialism. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. dude, wetlands have it the fucking worst of like all of yeah, the types. Dude. People were just like, oh, this is a wasteland. We need to fill it in and build something on top of it so it's worth something. Yeah, really. It's mm-hmm. super sad. Like, And just thinking about wetland species in general, um, yeah, they have it the worst, even just from like a perspective of like pollutants in the water and how toxic some of these places are, where even if they look natural, mm-hmm. like there's a lot going on there. And that whole like, what's it called? Like the Rust Belt area along the Great Lakes. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Indiana and they've lost at least 90% of all of their natural wetlands, which is horrifying. Mm-hmm. That's a ton. Holy shit. Yeah. And wetlands are just so important for ecosystems of all kinds, really. Like not even just the wetland themselves, but the areas around them. And the filtration that you get from wetlands for like water pollutants and stuff is like unparalleled to anything that we as we as humans have like technologically developed. It's insane. Anyway, I'm gonna shut up. Sorry. No, it's so <laughs> true. No, it's it, so important. It blows my mind. Like those studies that try to put a price tag on like the ecological services that are provided by. I mean, people have done it with pollinators and like, yeah, with wetlands mm-hmm. is always the one that I don't even know how you would begin to do that. But usually, it ends up basically being priceless. Mm-hmm. Because the technology to do that, like, doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just the wetlands do that, and there's no, there's nothing that humans can build that parallels it. Magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I do a lot of, like, habitat restoration work in my life, and I was so impressed by thinking about restoring a marsh, first of all, like, so complicated, and so many moving parts, and then... Thinking about with traditional ecological knowledge, it's drawing from a culture that was able to live in places like wetlands, like these whole landscapes, for centuries and sustain like the culture, the human community, and the natural community. And that is so powerful. Like the idea that humans ever could do that. If you just look at like our society today, like Black Friday coming up, just all of this <laughs> bullshit where you're like. <laughs> How did we ever do this? <laughs> luckily, we have traditional ecological knowledge, so we could theoretically figure it out, which is pretty exciting. And what I really liked about this article, so I wanted to read this quote <laughs> because I think it's important to have a voice that's not a white girl in <laughs> this conversation. So I'm quoting from this article in the Audubon magazine by Bradford Casberg. And he says, while I consider myself a birder, I recognize that the history of birding mirrors this country's colonial past. As white settlers undermined and devalued indigenous knowledge systems, people like John James Audubon came to the United States to, quote, discover and claim 
um, to document for the first time North American birds that my ancestors already knew well. Today's birders, likewise, tend to seek out the new and the unusual. Like any other birder, I revel in learning how to identify new birds by observing their behavior and delicate features. But I don't maintain a life list. I see those running tallies of birds one has witnessed and identified as an expression of colonial concepts of acquisition. Indigenous communities, in contrast, tend to carefully observe the regular and familiar birds of their landscape as symbols of their unique multi-layered cultural connections. So That's beautiful. pretty powerful, right? Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah, I think I said I like cried several times doing this research today. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, it's all so <laughs> profound. Like, yep. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like sometimes like the culture of ecology as someone who's just like <laughs> like <laughs> struggling over there oh my Whoa. god Ashley just got dinner brought to her and that was a beautiful I was moment almost and, then say nice. and then I that ran into amazing. the microphone with my uh silverware so it's all good it was that really happens. smooth for a second there until it wasn't it was, yeah yes. <laughs> worth it though dinner so worth Hell it yeah Mm-hmm. Anyway. anyway, it was powerful and beautiful. Yeah, really amazing. And it reminded me so much of a book that I recommend to like literally everyone I talk to. And it's called Braiding <laughs> Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have oh that book. It's been God. sitting on my table for like, well, basically all of coronavirus. My uncle, oh. or not my uncle, my grandpa sent it to me for my birthday. Oh. And I just, like, haven't read it, and I really need to. It's so good. It's so, so good. So Dr. Kimmerer is, like, a plant biologist, and she focuses on mosses and describes them in such a beautiful way and also brings a lot of indigenous ways of knowing into her research and her life and combines them in such an amazing and poetic way. And to me, it's, like, really hopeful, and I discovered it at a point in grad school where I was super burned out with just like Western science in general. And (laughs) it was really pretty life-changing for me. So I would read it for sure if you're curious about this sort of thing, as most people should be, I would say, living in America. (laughs) I feel like sometimes the like culture of studying ecology from a very Western perspective just feels very hollow to me. And I don't get that impression at all from traditional ways of knowing. And it makes me honestly like a little bit, what's the right word? Like jealous almost. Like I wish I, you know, had been raised in a framework that um, like elevated other species to the same level that humans are held in and like Western thought and had such a holistic perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think it's really cool. And it seems like the holistic perspective of thinking about ecology has done some pretty amazing work for conservation and like a lot of other things like mental health and yeah, just culture in general. So ethnobotany and ethno ornithology mm-hmm. specifically are really good at like taking mm-hmm. those kinds of views. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to point out too that yeah, like these, yeah, indigenous ways of knowing are incredible and they're really cool. And I feel like as a white person, you can still appreciate that. And I mean, you can incorporate those ideas, just not necessarily like the ceremonies and traditions and things, but like that kind of way of thinking, I think 
is totally something you can incorporate in your life. And I think, Maya, you've totally done that as is. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you've been a big influence on the way that I think about things sometimes, too. Um, And I think that's... Yeah, it's really cool, and it's. I'm really glad that I ran into it, and weirdly, I ran into it in academia, which isn't a place that I feel like yeah. you usually run into that kind of thinking. I hope we do more in the future. Yeah, completely. And reading, like, Braiding Sweetgrass, for example, the things that really kind of make an impression on me are her, the way she approaches the natural world with, like, such a sense of, like, awe and wonder and compassion. And I feel like you're right. Those are things that don't necessarily need to be tied to one culture or another and honestly probably should be a bigger part of more cultures so we're running a little bit long (laughs) Ah, sorry (laughs) i can just give a more brief shout out to this next story i was going to talk about because there are a couple really amazing articles in the audubon magazine again and also um, in the nature conservancy publications that honestly like do a way better job describing this than I would be able to summarize anyways (laughs) on this podcast right now but it's a a story from Canada from the Northwest Territories and um it's about a new preserve a 6.5 million acre preserve that just got established Mm -hmm. last year yeah right so that is like more protected area Mm -hmm. than is in the entire state of wisconsin i was doing some googling today trying to like conceptualize (laughs) 6.5 million acres and i'll try to pronounce the name of this park um (laughs) uh it's which means land of the ancestors the lutzake dene first nation Um, was really involved in establishing this park and all, I think, 300 members of this First Nation actually live within the park, live and continue, like, traditional hunting and fishing practices. So it's a really cool partnership and this, like, wild idea of protecting land without, like, forcibly removing the people who lived on the land, which is apparently still something that we need to, like, you know, baby steps with in 2020. But we're making some cool progress. So pretty awesome. Um, This park is on the eastern edge of the Great Slave Lake, and it is really important because it protects a ton of boreal (laughs) forest habitat, but is um, crosses the tree line. So it protects like that transition habitat between tundra and forest, which, yeah, right, right. So thinking about climate change and species needing to migrate and shift their ranges, like that's definitely an area we could focus on. Uh, boreal forest bird species are some of my favorites. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, black pole warblers, olive sided oh, flycatchers, yeah. Cape May mm-hmm. warblers, corvids, corvids, everyone's favorite. <laughs> there's uh in the boreal region of canada there's also 600 indigenous communities that live in that area so it's really significant and in the past when national parks were established there they were just kind of evicted and could no longer uh, hunt and fish which is like a huge part of their practices and so that's pretty awful when uh banff national park was established um the superintendent. I've been there. Oh, hey. Oh, my God. Uh, so it's cool. definitely on my list to Seriously. go. Seriously, It's pretty amazing. But anyway, <laughs> continue saying what you were going to say. Because I'm sure I'm going to regret, like, giving them money. 
this was a long time ago, so it's fine now. Um, in 1887, <laughs> when <laughs> the park was established, the superintendent, a man named George Stewart, wrote about excluding the Nakoda people because, quote, their destruction of the game and depredations among the ornamental trees make their too frequent visits to the park a matter of great concern. What? Uh, <laughs> I know. This is on stolen land, can we just say? So, it's crazy to me how much that parallels things that people still say about like Native American harvest of completely like a lot of fish species like walleye mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. The walleye wars is like yeah. a serious fucking ridiculous thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's crazy that I mean, I'm not surprised that they were saying it then. I'm kind of disgusted that people are still saying it now. Well, and they're still saying it in Canada with moose hunters. It's super fucked up anyway. Mm. It really is. And so we have these ideas about just, like, excluding people and only thinking about land as being wild and worthy of conservation if it's very separate from people. But there are some studies that came out. Um, One United Nations report in May found that species decline more slowly on lands owned and managed by indigenous communities, particularly related to, like, deforestation in the tropics and... um, in Latin America, same thing. Also in Canada, Australia, and Brazil. So pretty like intense trend in a lot of different places in the world. And I mean, I think it's something that is probably intuitively known for a long time, but now there are also like data supported studies that are out too about this. I, I'm thinking back to like when colonizers first came to the United States and there was this perception of like a Garden of Eden style thing mm-hmm. um, where like the colonists came in and like there was like food that was just like growing along the sides of paths and things like that where like mm-hmm. these indigenous peoples had cultivated crops to do these things and like knew how to manage the land. But there's this idea which I think is completely false and like flawed of like no land management associated with wilderness mm-hmm. and that's just like patently not true completely and infuriating <laughs> yeah yeah well, it wasn't managed by western people so it doesn't count true never mind that, that true. native people have been living in the americas for what ten thousand years or something mm-hmm. twelve thousand mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right like they know like people have cultural knowledge and transmission and they know how to like manage the land and then fucking white people came and they're like you don't know how to do shit yeah and luckily there happens to be food growing all over the place how convenient like let's just harvest that now (laughs) yeah right (laughs) like prescribed fire is the other one that gets me oh yeah yeah (laughs) there's a program called the Indigenous Leadership Initiative or the Indigenous Guardians that is ongoing throughout several places in Canada. I think there's 30 different teams right now, but the idea is to kind of use this program, the Indigenous Guardians, to conserve and manage lands, um, to be like inventorying the species and kind of recovering some of these processes of managing lands in an indigenous way and transferring knowledge between generations. So it seems really, really cool. I don't know so much about it other than um, this program was involved in one of the first formal bird surveys that happened on the new preserve, which 
I was super into reading about because like, oh my God, the boreal forest, so amazing. And just thinking about like how little we really know about a lot of bird species whose northern range limit is like somewhere before the tundra, but no one really knows. It's not necessarily been well studied for just so many reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think in 2019, there was the first like really extensive bird survey in this new national park. And it's done by helicopter, just like flying to these different spots. And (laughs) seriously, yeah, oh my God, it's just so much land. And uh, yeah, there's and this quote about like slogging across wetlands to listen for bird calls at sunrise, um, recording bird song at night with um, automatic recording (sighs) units. So these little like devices that just sit out in the woods and record sounds. Um, So they've already identified more than 90 species, including a lot of at-risk species. And it's also interesting because they're starting to pick up some species that are shifting their ranges north as the climate is changing. And so it's just a really important place for this kind of work to be going on. And really cool that it's now possible and something that's going to be conserved into the future. And a pretty intense partnership between Um, The First Nations, several governments, the Nature Conservancy. Um, So yeah, I was so excited to read about it. Had no idea it had happened. Um, But yeah, since 2019. And yeah, there's a few articles we can link in our social media and on our blogs. You can find more information about this because there really is so much more there. The like nitty gritty political details of this have been in uh, progress since the 1960s. So there's a lot there if you're curious. Um, should we just plan for this to be a two-parter? I think so. Okay. And this is important, so we can devote two parts to totally. it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about trumpeter swan reintroduction in Montana. This is pretty cool, not made, not like on the same scale as um, this new thing in Canada with the huge, you know, um, protected area and stuff. But um, I think this really is sort of like points to how even these really like localized efforts can have these really tangible and important impacts. Um, mm-hmm. So trumpeter swans are one of the largest breeding birds we have in North America. Um, they're all white. They're swans. Well, swans are white. <laughs> There's the one species of swan that is black, and they live in Australia, so I must clarify that they're all white. <laughs> oh, I thought that was Natalie Portman. Uh, well, yeah, that's no. um, <laughs> But because they're such big birds, and they have these beautiful snowy white feathers um they were nearly wiped out by the 20th century because of unregulated hunting and feather collection and also the conversion of the wetlands that they breed in into land for agriculture um and so by the 20th century people were like oh there are no more swans we need to do something about this and so Um, a reintroduction plan was put into place to hopefully reverse this decline. Um, So there's like regional plans in the Rocky Mountains. There have been plans in um, like the Eastern, I don't know if Eastern is the right word, the Midwest for sure. Um, 
Like, <laughs> we had a huge reintroduction program in Wisconsin that was super successful. Um, but I'm going to talk about just the reintroduction plan on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Montana. Um, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes uh, live on this reservation, and they have a super long history of not only like maintaining the land and preserving it for animals, but reintroducing species onto their tribal lands. Um, so species like peregrine falcons and northern leopard frogs and Colombian sharp-tailed grouse. Um, cool. They yeah. completely redesigned a highway that runs through the reservation so that it would protect, so that it would avoid important wetlands. And they put a bunch of wildlife overpasses and underpasses and like fences along the highway so that animals wouldn't get run over by vehicles. That shit's so cool. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they've just imagining all the little baby like northern leopard frogs with their I mean their tadpoles I guess I was just imagining <laughs> them like holding hands and crossing the overpass with their parents uh, which is so anthropomorphizing uh, but it's so cute yeah it's still pretty cute so um, hey, even scientists are allowed to anthropomorphize sometimes ooh. I'm just gonna like throw that out yes. there yes yeah yeah um the, they've also set aside 400,000 acres of land in a conservation network, like across their, mm-hmm. um, the whole reservation, including 92,000 acres in a, uh, the Mission Mountains Tribal Wilderness Area um, in 1972. Whoa. This was the first wilderness area designated by a tribal entity in the U.S. Wow. So that's, like, in pretty 72. exciting. Yeah, 1972. Um, And they have a 10,000-acre grizzly bear conservation area and two large areas um, to maintain healthy long-term elk and bighorn sheep herds. Um, So they're doing, like, lots of cool things, and they have been doing lots of really cool, important things for a very long time. Um, And so in the late 1990s, they banned trumpeter swan hunting on the reservation, and then their first sort of effort to reintroduce trumpeter swans onto the reservation was to bring cygnets. Um, that's what baby swans are called. They mm. gathered up some cygnets from Oregon and Canada, and then they brought those to the reservation um, and sort of like released them, basically. Um, Ashley, can I ask a question? Yes. Um, were trumpeter swans ever technically listed under the Endangered Species Act? Because this is all I, before very many species were listed, right? Yeah, this was, like, they were on the brink of extinction in the 1900s. And mm. the the two articles that Damn. I looked at from, one from, one was from Audubon Magazine, and the other one was from the Flathead Beacon. Um mm. They didn't really go into specifics about what other, what other efforts there were, like, prior to this one that I'm talking about, but I'm sure okay. there were plenty of other efforts. Um, yeah. I have, an, I have a question, too. Yeah. Which is just where in Montana is this reservation located? Like, is it closer to the Rocky Mountain side? Do you know? Um, it's part of the Rocky Mountain, like reintroduction plan for trumpeter swans i can look it up on a Mm. map really quick i didn't look that up before Um, i was just curious because like i know that there have been a lot of 
there's been a lot of like reintroduction and conservation work in like I think eastern Montana close to where Yellowstone National Park is but I didn't know if this was like part of that uh, complex or not this is in western Montana nice so not by Yellowstone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah that's awesome so they're doing lots of cool things. They tried to reintroduce um, some baby swans. I shouldn't say baby babies. They were sort of like... <laughs> Juveniles. Juveniles. <laughs> Teenagers. Um, yeah, that's the word. Thank you. <laughs> um, that didn't work super great. After their first winter, the swans that they released didn't come back from their wintering area in Idaho. Um, they just sort of decided Aww. they were going to hang out down there instead. Um, <laughs> seems like less work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, they they didn't have any um, adult wild swans to like follow and learn mm. where to go and stuff because there were no more swans mm. on this reservation. Totally. Um, mm. So then after that didn't work, they started a captive breeding program at Montana Waterfowl Foundation. Um, and so they've been reintroducing swans since 2001 from this captive breeding um, program and it's been pretty successful they've released um, over 400 trumpeter swans and the population currently is about I think 200 or more just sort of like in the reservation itself Um, there are many many more trumpeter swans than that in the entire trumpeter swan population but yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the biggest hurdles has been um, this loss of traditional knowledge about trumpeter swans. Um, they were on the brink of extinction at about the same time when um, white United States folks decided to force Native Americans to assimilate assimilate to white culture. Um, so children were forced mm-hmm. to go to um boarding schools and so they weren't growing up on the reservation and they weren't learning this firsthand knowledge from um other people in the tribe that might have known things and they weren't experiencing the few trumpeter swans that were still around um so there was this loss between the generations uh about uh this traditional knowledge of what trumpeter swans are and what they do and the connections between trumpeter swans and the reservation and the land and the people that mm-hmm. live there. Um, and so there's like this, that loss, that part of their sort of the culture and all of that. Um, and the people are having to relearn this, but also the swans have lost that. Um, like I said, the swans were basically extirpated from this area. So there were no wild trumpeter swans, that these captive bred um, swans could learn from. They couldn't, they didn't have any wild swans out there to teach them, like, here's the best spots mm-hmm. for finding food, or here's the best spots to spend the winter, or, you know, here's where we migrate to. Um, and But since they've been doing this from 2001 onwards, there are now wild swans that the others can learn from. Um, Yay. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> that's good. Swans. It's good. Yeah. Um, 
the population, um, they, it doesn't really migrate a whole bunch in the winter. They sort of move around the reservation or like sort of the immediate area. And I think part of that might be that they never learned a migratory pathway from wild swans, but also there seems to be enough open water and enough aquatic vegetation for them to eat in the winter in the area that they don't necessarily need to migrate. So it's like, people aren't worried cool. about it. Um, mm. So, yeah. I'm so happy about this group of latchkey swans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, seriously. <laughs> Just making it on their own. Who needs parents? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they did have, like, surrogate parents in the captive, like, breeding program Mm. so it's not like they just like took day old chicks and chucked them out there they did learn some swan things from (laughs) adults but like you know they were adults that were in captive Mm -hmm. captivity um Mm -hmm. you hatched the fly bitch (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's really cool how like the process of the swans relearning how to be swans in that space kind of parallels like the human process of regaining that knowledge like that's really powerful yeah I thought that was a very um sort of important takeaway that I didn't think about originally um Mm -hmm. like when I first started reading the article and I they brought up this point about how the tribes lost this knowledge about the species I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then they were like, yeah, but the swans also lost the knowledge from their yeah. older swan generations. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, my mind is so blown right now. Um, <laughs> ah, fucking colonialism, man. Like, <laughs> it's yeah. So yeah. I feel like one of the things about this podcast that's been so great is like when I do research for these articles, it always starts with me being interested in whatever bird I'm looking up for the most part with the exception of a few episodes that we've done, but I feel like inevitably it ends up, you end up realizing how intertwined whatever bird you're talking about is with a certain community or a certain person or like, I don't know, Mm -hmm. it always, it ends up being a story also about people, Mm -hmm. which is maybe just human centric, but (laughs) it's kind (laughs) of cool. I think it is so hard. Like, how do you really ever separate birds from the landscape and people from the landscape? Like, I think that's Mm -hmm. important. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's all nature, man. There's a lot of hubris and naivety associated with, like, thinking that humans are separate from a lot of Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff, I think. Mm -hmm. It's like, because you can't survive, like, no human can survive without it. And they're so inextricably linked that, like, when when you try to separate them... You wind up with capitalism and colonialism, which just, like, fuck everything over. And so, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and then, like, there's the delay for sure, but eventually it fucks over, like, ourselves, too, if we're really, like, bought into this capitalist society. Like, there's (laughs) there's no escaping it. This podcast is all about eat the rich, save the birds. (laughs) Seems that way. (laughs) No, but we need the rich to fund our conservation efforts. (laughs) No. No, Ashley. You take Jeff Bezos, you put stuffing inside of his body, then you bake him in the oven and you eat him. And then you take all his money. But he just donated, like, a buttload of money for a whole bunch of, like, different conservation things. I mean, granted, it's probably, like, a drop in the bucket of his, what, bajillion dollars that he has. (laughs) Uh Well, I mean, I think the interesting thing is, yeah, it's a drop in the bucket for what he has. But it actually, I think I was reading about this, too. And there were seven or eight organizations that he donated to. And the amount that he was donating was, like, it ended up 
being like it would be a significant portion of their budget like the amount of money Mm -hmm. that he donated like half or like something crazy like that yeah yeah which just i feel like goes to show how we do not put enough funding into conservation of things that we all rely on for life yeah and also like the people that make a ton of money from like like manufacturing and selling cheap shit for example like that fucks up ecosystems so much and so it's like that is the least they can do is pay it back a little bit and i feel like they do it and we're like oh my god wow like what a conservationist (laughs) it's like no like we need the more holistic picture here right also these people do not deserve praise for like oh here let me it's basically like any one human being being like i have penny here have penny mm-hmm. for food yeah like to i know human i'm so being. cynical like, about it i'm just like he's just buying good press for himself yeah like that's where i'm at too because i'm just like i fucking hate rich people anyway okay <laughs> anyway eat the rich <laughs> eat the rich back to the swans don't eat the swans please yes <laughs> do not eat the mm-hmm. swans <laughs> do not unless unless you have can you are there any places you can hunt swans? Are there pla- like you can hunt geese and stuff migratory? I don't know. I'm I'll sure you can hunt. That, but no, because even Mr. Nasty was protected. Mr. Nasty, he's protected. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Nasty is protected. Don't eat the swans. No matter how nasty I forgot they about are. Mr. Nasty. <laughs> Never forget Mr. Nasty. <laughs> if they're nasty, you probably wouldn't want to eat them. <laughs> I feel like swans would not taste good anyway. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. They eat like, like plant humans. Nasty <laughs> shit that's at the bottom. And other of swans. <laughs> Mute swans are the horrible ones. Yeah. Oh wait, dude, I thought trumpeter swans also ate like the vegetation that grows at the bottom of lakes. Am I wrong about that? No, no yeah, I think they, you're right. I think they they do. eat vegeta- aquatic vegetation, but mute swans are the ones that eat people not literally eat but they attack people <laughs> and kill them uh mute swans wait will trumpeter swans also because i feel like mute swans will eat like ducklings or other little things that bother them do do trumpeter swans do that too <laughs> i don't know maybe i'm not sure um i do know that they're like big babies when you try to catch them they just like oh, go limp they're... when you catch them oh. that's their whole strategy <laughs> I love when really big, scary birds are super docile when you actually handle them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it always makes me laugh. It's like the dogs barking at you, but only at, like before you open the door. As soon as you open the door, they're like, please don't hurt me. Anyway, trumpeters. I've got like three more sentences and then we can talk about whatever oh, I'm we ready want. For, um... Um, I'm ready for him. <laughs> so, uh, just besides being really beautiful birds um, and having intrinsic value just for being cool, um, they also play an important ecological role. Um, so they drive away destructive Canada geese. Uh, there's so many <laughs> Canada geese everywhere, and they just basically rip up all of the vegetation everywhere to eat and they poop everywhere and it's a whole thing so much poop um they hiss at you yeah and and canada geese are sort of mean sometimes when they have babies which is understandable but it's also scary Um, i feel like they're mean when they don't have babies 
Well, <laughs> it's they're less mean. Mm. Yeah. Um, trumpeter spawns also <laughs> dig up a Sorry, I had plant. a pack of Canada geese chase me one time when I was, like, biking. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not over it. It's not over for me. <laughs> a pack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were, like, 20 of them. This was in Ashland, uh, Wisconsin. Holy like shit. There was, like, a lakeshore path, and I would always ride my bike, like, along the lakeshore. And... Yeah, I mean, I was riding slowly because I was looking at the lake, but there was, like, a pack of them, like, on the path. Oh, and so I yeah. just went between them, and they were not okay with it. And they were all like, <laughs> Yeah, the hits do. so real. Uh. <laughs> and then their, like, Terrible. neck feathers puff up. Yeah, dude, it's yeah, scary yeah. as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> God, some of them scared the hell out of some students on a bird field trip once. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I was laughing so much. I like, felt a little bad, but like they had wandered off from the group and I was kind of annoyed. Oh, and totally these girls were like on it. Exactly. I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good lesson for any <laughs> undergraduate student to learn. It's yeah. good. We need more, like, patrol geese in undergrad life, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, new new idea, instead of having a guard dog, have a guard goose in your yard. Mm-hmm. That'd be yeah. cool, except it would also attack you. Yeah. I'm, that right. <laughs> Can you train them? <laughs> yeah, maybe. like, maybe you give it a piece of bread every time you go outside. Uh, I don't know. Don't, don't know. feed bread to geese. That's horrible. Don't do it. Also, if you I gave it like... food sometimes, I feel like it would beat the shit out of you if you didn't That's have true. food. <laughs> Wait, has right. anyone? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jen. No, you guys. Yeah. It's totally out of control. It would be a guard dog that you could control. <laughs> no, I was just thinking about the, there's like a game for the Nintendo Switch. Has anyone played like Untitled Goose Game? I think is what it's called. Yes. No. Yes, have. I you have. played it, Jen? <laughs> I really want, I kind of want to get it. I've seen it. It seems like you just cause, like, you just, like, chase humans around with knives and all this, like, crazy shit. Yeah. Just, like, you you have to, a to-do like... list of just, like, chaos. <laughs> I My friend this summer made me play it because she was like, you need to get your anger out. It's, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, general annoyance. Like, all right, like, play the goose game. It was really fun. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm going to get recommend. it. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry. sorry. Um, okay, we gotta finish. So they drive spells. away geese. They dig up aquatic plants, um, and then they deposit nutrients into their habitat, which is just a fancy way of saying they poop places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it's important though. It's very important. <laughs> that... <laughs> good you one, got her. You got her good. <laughs> Excuse me for a moment. Excuse me for a moment while I go deposit. That is a really good, like, wait, can you call it like a poofamism? (laughs) Yes, yes, you can. (laughs) Now you can. (laughs) It's okay. We're going to get through this one. We really are. Yeah, yeah, we will. Oh my God. Um, So. to eat before next time um not only do they have this like important ecological role uh they're 
this reintroduction effort is makes it clear that small localized efforts can have really important uh, results. Um, so there's swans that now you know spend the breeding season in all of these little prairie pothole wetlands all over, and landowners um, around the area want to know. <laughs> want to know how they can improve their ponds. Oh my gosh, you three are just so sorry. having a breakdown right now. I was doing okay until you hit prairie pothole, which I realize is not funny, but for some reason that term just always makes me laugh. <laughs> also, Chad is just losing it. I can't even look at the screen like right now. So but a prairie pothole seems like such a good place to make a nutrient deposit. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure all the birds know that. <laughs> oh my god. I was trying so hard. I was like covering my mouth and I was trying not to laugh. And then I kept looking at the screen. And then Kristen and Maya were laughing every single time I looked at the screen. <laughs> episodes are not that that long because we are like done after one hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, penis at some point, Jen, we're going to have a whole bunch of episodes about poop. How are we going to get through them? I'm really looking forward to those. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 I'm gonna start saving up my poop puns now. Uh, okay. Good oh. job. Are you writing one down right now? Yeah, I sure am. It's a good one too. I'm really excited. <laughs> the like glance up from the paper. <laughs> There's so much that everyone is missing because it's not a video. Well, it's they true. just get to hear us laughing. It's and fun. also me just like nodding constantly because that's apparently what I do in, in Zoom meetings. Yeah, I Look didn't know right that now. about myself until Zoom. <laughs> like, yeah. You know. Yep. Well, I mean, how else are you supposed to show people that you are hearing what they're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to like interrupt them or just stare at the wall because um, that's rude. It's true. It's we, true. Need, we interrupt each <laughs> other all the time. <laughs> Not in a Zoom meeting for work. Uh, that's well. I don't know. It depends on the, the context of the work mm-hmm. Zoom meeting. <laughs> this is work. That's true. I feel really. Hey, this podcast in the work is right work. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm feeling super professional. <laughs> yeah, that's how I would describe myself right now <laughs> in this moment. <laughs> Well, I I'm, I went to the wrong place. I can't I'm believe you, Jen. You're really letting us right down here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna need you to maintain an air of professionalism. Sorry, I'll do better next. <laughs> it's I'll cool. I didn't even have a microphone time, last time, so I think we're really nailing it this week. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, always. Um, anyway, Ashley, do you have more yes, things to say before my last I completely sentence. lose my mind? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're, we're still ready. We're oh not going to fuck it up. Okay, I can do this. It's okay. It's, yeah, whatever. Um, it was my fault for saying poop. 
<laughs> no, that's like victim blaming right there. That's not on you. <laughs> that is. Also, you said poop again. So like, it's okay, I'm not making now. eye contact on my Zoom screen with anyone else. So like, now's your chance. Okay. Me either. Last thing. There's swans everywhere now. And so people <laughs> want to learn how they can improve their own ponds to attract them and keep them around because they really like the swans. That was my last mm. sentence. Woo. It took me like 10 minutes yes. to get through three sentences. I'm y'all. so Ew. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we're all fuckheads. Ashley, you are the sage yes. human being of this group. I feel like this is just going to keep shining through, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've realized it's pretty obvious when you listen back to the episodes. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I'm the only one that ever drinks a non-alcoholic beverage mm-hmm. i'm real cool <laughs> that's not true yeah. i also drink a lot of coffee <laughs> yes during the podcast oh no just in the morning <laughs> your eyebrows uh during the podcast <laughs> i was like i haven't seen you drink coffee during the podcast yet <laughs> i was drinking hot chocolate with like baileys in it that was pretty good i thought about putting Ooh, some coffee yeah. in there but i didn't I was going to say, you have a coffee mug, so there's nothing that the rest of us can, like... I almost put coffee in, and then I realized that I would never sleep. It's yeah. It's too late in the day. Mm, classic mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've done it before. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I stay up, too. I stay up all night sometimes, but it actually has nothing to do with caffeine and a lot more to do with alcohol. That, yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And also, like, dumb shit antics. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is going to be a two-parter we found out about halfway through. There's just so much to cover. Um, yes. I have a couple of shout-outs. One is to Woo. a bot. <laughs> we got, we, we got nice. retweeted We got retweeted by a bot. I'll take it. Um, yeah. So we got, oh, nice. we got retweeted Hell by yeah. Women in STEM, which is super cool. It's a bot that's dedicated to, like, uh, female empowerment and particularly those in STEM. That's us. So science, technology, <laughs> um, engineering, and math. Yeah. So it was really awesome. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's at Women in STEM SA on Twitter. Um, if you want, like, more cool, like, women in science um, content on your Twitter feed, that's an awesome uh, bot to mm, follow. Because nice. <laughs> they just retweet, like, a bunch of shit every day. Um, we have a couple of new followers. I also have a shout out for, oh. we got our first email from oh. a listener yes. and it was from my mom. <laughs> so, th- oh. so thanks Mama Schneiderman. It was super sweet. Thanks mom. Love you. Um, so yeah, uh, we hope that you enjoyed this part one episode of indigenous conservation stories. Um, you can follow us on Twitter we are at Flocktails, and on Instagram, we are at Flocktail Hour, and we are at Flocktail Hour on Facebook, and we also have a store on Threadless. <laughs> we do and we have, have an website. email address. Oh, fuck, and we have a wait, website. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, the website is flocktailhour.wordpress.com, <laughs> and it is now fully updated to all of the episodes that have been released with links and pictures and content from episodes mm-hmm. as well so check it out and it also links you to all of our social media and our merch store 
Yes. And our email, mm. if you want to email us, is foxtailspodcast yes. at gmail.com. Please email. We would love to hear from you. <laughs> yeah. From if you, yeah. If you <laughs> just have any random bird-related things yeah. or, uh, like, this episode, if you have any indigenous bird-related conservation stories you want us to know about, that would be super cool. Or, or if topics you, have... you want to hear in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or good bird or poop puns. Always yes. over. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you hate us, do not contact us on any of our social media. We don't want to hear it. Nah. You can keep that to yourself. We're over it already. <laughs> no. Yep. We'll send Stay the after fuck you. over there. <laughs> Listen to Mute Swan. Are you kidding? (laughs) That's a real good threat. Also, we're over it anyways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Nasty coming at (laughs) you. But if you do, if you do send us a bird poop related pun, we will uh, give you a shout out in the episode where we talk about bird poop. I'm calling it right now. That's what we're doing. Yes. yes. Or or if you have mm-hmm. cool pictures of bird poop that looks <gasps> yeah. like other things. Oh. Like if you yeah. see Jesus's face and some bird poop. <laughs> yeah, we want to know actually. <laughs> like send that over here. <laughs> Is anyone else going to google that immediately after the episode because I am. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, hands down. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, so find us on all of our social media and on uh, and send us an email. Yes. And also check out the store. We have some really cool designs. There's um there's our podcast uh cover photo where there's like the four birds on the martini glass. There's a mayhem chickadee sitting on top of a bunch of skulls, and there is a wet ass poo Yes, <laughs> it's Huge very good. Shout out to Cody for all of the art too. Thank yeah, you, Cody. seriously, it's amazing. Oh yeah, he did awesome. I literally just said like four things, and then he ran with it, and I was like, "Sweet, yes. this is fucking legit." Yes, yes. so, so Jen's oh, partner so Cody is to thank for all of the amazing artwork at the merch mm-hmm. store. Yeah. My husband, partner, human spouse. That's is the one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> should we sign off? Yeah, yeah, we should. I'm Maya Pershy. I'm Ashley Ola. I'm Kristen Brunk. And I'm Jen Schneiderman. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Peace out. See you next time. <laughs>